wrapping up the afternoon. Today we are at the Cesar Chavez Conference on Diversity. And today we've just had a panel discussion in the big ballroom with about 400 people about the opioid crisis and the treatment and prevention of this crisis that is facing all of us. So let me introduce our panel and then I'm going to turn it over to our moderator who's going to ask very intelligent questions, much more than what I would do. So what I would ask is, um, let me just read off the names here so we know who's here and what role they play. So if you just kind of introduce yourself, we have Carissa Ricks. And, and what is your role into this, your area of specialty? So I am a nurse practitioner and I currently work for Community Medical Services where we treat opioid use disorder with medication assisted treatment. Okay. And then next we have Dr. Saul Perea. And doctor, if you'd share with us a little bit of the role that you play within the community. Yes. Um, uh, I work for Theros Health as a chief medical officer and I'm in charge of the medication assistant treatment uh, uh, where I, I, I attend patients myself. Uh, um, and um, uh, it's been uh, about two and a half years about uh, that we started this clinic. All right. Welcome. Welcome. And then we have Doug Coleman, who is, I'll let you go ahead and introduce who you, who you are and how you play in this community as well. I am a, a little different than our first two guests. I am Doug Coleman. I'm the special agent in charge of the United States Drug Enforcement Administration in Arizona. Okay. Um, earlier, we were talking a little bit, and one of our engineers was hoping to hear some stories about your job. So <laughs> we'll see what kind of stories come out in, in this particular interview. And then we have Katharina Johnson, Dr. Johnson, you're going to moderate today, but give us a little bit of your background and how you uh, show up in the community. Yes, so um, my profession is within juvenile probation um, here in Maricopa County, and I am also an adjunct faculty professor at GCU, and I mainly teach master's level psychology courses. Wonderful. So I made the intelligent move today to defer the moderation over to Dr. Johnson. And she's going to be just interacting with our panel, asking some questions. I'm sure I'll interrupt from time to time. Uh, but it really is an opportunity to share and educate more than the professionals attending this particular conference today. It's an opportunity to share with the community uh, signs to look out for, prevention areas that we can talk about. So let's turn it over to you, Dr. Johnson. Absolutely. Thank you. So here in discussing the, um, the uh, opioid epidemic and treatment issue, we have sort of the intersection between law enforcement, criminal justice, if you will, and um, behavioral health. Um, and so one of the questions that I'll start off with is, because we are talking about medic medication-assisted treatment, let's um, tell us what is the gold standard of treatment for opioid use disorder? Uh, yeah, I can, I can take that one. Okay. Um, uh, you know, we uh, at Teros Health, we uh, we go by the the SAMHSA definition, which is the uh, um, uh, Substance Abuse uh, uh, and Mental Health uh, Administration, um, which is um, it tells us that uh, it, the medication assistant treatment is the use of medications uh, along with psychosocial rehabilitation for patients with opioid use disorder. Um, 
there are uh, three main uh, medications approved for uh, that purpose. Uh, methadone, which is has been in the in the market for more than 60 years, uh, and uh, still considered the gold standard for uh, for the the treatment of medication uh, for uh, opioid use disorder individuals. Um, uh, then we have uh, buprenorphine, uh, and uh, it's been in the market since the early 2000, uh, and uh, it's becoming a really common medication utilized by uh, by our professionals. Um, the the most recent addition is uh, naltrexone injectable, which is a uh, medication that is much different than the, the two previous ones that I mentioned, which uh, Vivitrol is the, the trade name, um, and it's a, an opioid blocker. Uh, so those three medications as, uh, are the main the main gold standards for the, the opioid use disorder treatment. I just have a question around why is this opioid crisis, how did it turn into a crisis and what's the strength or the draw or the pull with this type of drug? So I, I can address a little bit about how we came to this price, uh, crisis, and then I'll leave it to the doctor to explain why people like these drugs. Uh, here's the reality is, is in the United States, we've had a, a, a significant overprescribing of opioid problem for the last 25 or so years. I use the example that it, it, as of about four years ago, the United States has 5% of the world's population, yet we consume about 95% of the world's hydrocodone and 80% of the world, world's oxycodone. We do all that with 5% of the population. So that's how we got here. Now, we can't look backwards, right? It happened. We're now we have to try to fix it. And the reality is, is that... that we're doing some stuff to try to make it to make it to, to try to dial back the uh, the amount of those prescriptions, but as we draw those back, now the cartels and people like that will come in to try to exploit the fact that we still have a huge number of American citizens that are addicted to these drugs. So from the DEA side, we're going to attack the cartels. We're going to go after the people that are bringing it in here. We're going to arrest them, bring them to justice. But we also have to make sure that we we have the capacity and the ability to treat all these people that are left over. We can't do any of this without each other. And I think that's the key point to this whole thing. The, you can't treat your way out of this pro, of this epidemic. We, we are doing our part to arrest as many of the bad guys as you can. The only thing that we can do really is prevent our way out of this, and the prevention stuff is a 20-year investment in this. We have to start young and try to drive them forward. I will defer to the doctor on why people want these drugs. Yeah. <laughs> um. Okay, I, I, I will go with that. Um, you, you know, when I was uh, I was in uh, probably medical school or may, maybe in residency training uh, at the University of Arizona, um, I remember um, we got this message from our uh, governmental health uh, agencies that we really needed to treat pain as a fifth cardinal symptom, mm -hmm. right? And every physician was like, uh, so into making sure that nobody will suffer from pain and there's no uh, medication better to treat acute pain than opioids so that's that was the start uh, but it will be um, uh, cruel for me to blame all the physicians for this. It's a, it's a it's a, it's a, it's a mess that a lot of people you know uh, contributed to. 
right? Uh, so physicians are a part, just part of it. Um, why people get addicted? Boy, uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> um, I, I would say a combination of biological uh, genes that you, you, you already portrayed in yourself um, and uh, environmental issues, uh, peer pressure, uh, social determinants of health. You don't have any, uh, any roof under your head. You, you, you escape all those uh, traumatic realities of your life and you go, you go to drugs because those, uh, those effects uh, help you to forget reality. So that's in a nutshell. You know, I think there's something that's important too is, is and, the, and the doctor brought up a good point, that the overprescribing problem is, is what started it. But remember, they don't overprescribe if we, the American people, don't want this product, mm -hmm. right? And then when we say we want it, then drug companies start making it and they invest billions of dollars to develop these. And when they invest those billions of dollars, then they influence the people who are training our doctors. It's a whole big cycle about how this happens. And I think that, that, that the bottom line is, is that we, as the American public, demanded these products. And that's why we're where we are now. I think I would just add that opioids basically hijack the brain. So once you add opiates to the mix, it kind of alters the brain chemistry, um, which is extremely powerful in terms of addiction and what that looks like for each individual. Yeah, thank you for underscoring that. Appreciate that. I'm going to defer back to you. I have a follow-up question, actually, for Special Agent Coleman, and that is, who is primarily responsible for drug trafficking in Arizona and in the U.S. in general? So drug trafficking is predominantly controlled by, by the cartels that operate in Mexico. For Arizona, um, that's the Sinaloa-based cartel. There are a couple other cartels that operate in that area. But for the most part, probably 80% to 85% of all the drugs that come into the United States are controlled by those cartels and, uh, and are trafficked across the southwest border of the country. So that's, uh, that's enemy number one for the DEA or those cartels. And, uh, and they're controlling the vast majority of what's going on, including the fentanyl trade right now. About 85% of all the fentanyl that's coming into the United States is coming across that border down uh, south. It used to come in from Chinese sources, but the, the cartels uh, realized that somebody was cutting in on their profit, and they've, they've taken over the vast majority of the fentanyl trafficking as well. And so here we can blame supply and demand as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. In great part. Sure. Okay. Uh, question for um, um, perhaps the doctor or Ms. Riggs. Isn't methadone treatment trading one addiction for another? We frequently hear that question. So one of my, that's kind of one of my favorite questions. So in terms of opiates in the brain, um, we have to replace an opiate with another opiate in order to successfully treat a patient, unfortunately. That's just the nature of the disease. Um, but we're not treating one for another because methadone and buprenorphine are FDA-approved medications that we know specifically how strong they are. There's monitored by medical providers. Um, so you're going from something that's not regulated to uh, something that is regulated and is monitored. So it, it's... In a nutshell, it's not 
trading one addiction for another. Do you want to add anything to that, Dr. Perea? Well, just uh, just to say that um, uh, the main purpose of uh, the medication assistant treatment is uh, harm reduction. And if you are going to be using these two medications to to save lives, uh, that's definitely not trading one from another. Because we know that by uh, uh, having, like Carissa said, uh, having the environment uh, of those two medications under control and having people monitor uh, their dose, their use, uh, uh, it's totally a different ball game than letting somebody in the community abuse fentanyl or abuse uh, heroin. You know, Doug, you brought up a point around um, you have one lane to play in, physicians and healthcare professionals have another lane to play in. Um, how do you work at this crisis collaboratively? Can you give us an example of what collaboration looks like in this? I mean, for, for the most part, the collaboration is when we come together in things like this and we, and we talk and we make those connections with each other. Um, we, we have an educational role, and especially when it comes to doctors, because DEA regulates the, the ability of a doctor to write a, a prescription for a controlled substance. So we have a role to play in educating doctors uh, as far as that uh, from our regulatory side, which is not the agent side that, that goes after the, the drug cartels. But I think that, that we, each, we each play an important part but our collaboration, because we are the guys that arrest the bad guys and, and they are the, the staff that treats the people with, uh, with abuse disorders, we don't cross over that often, quite frankly. Um, because DEA doesn't arrest drug, uh, drug, dr people with, with drug use uh, issues, and we, that's not our issue. We don't, we're not, we're not going to arrest somebody that has a, a substance abuse disorder or is a drug addict. That's not our thing. We, we go after the cartels and the biggest and the baddest drug dealers in the world. Yeah. But I think that we definitely have an educational role to play uh, in, as far as our regulatory work with medical professionals. Now, we heard earlier... Um, during the panel discussion, um, some talk about how long patients should stay involved in medication-assisted treatment. Um, and I think we heard some numbers like over a year, more than a year. Um, talk to us a little bit about um, the length of time that patients should stay in treatment. Yes, um, I can take that one. Uh, there is no general consensus uh, in the in the medical literature about uh, that, that dictates how much time you should keep the patient on certain medications. I think uh, every every person should be individualized. Every treatment should be tailored to, to that particular patient and uh, given the opportunity to uh, to get stronger not only biologically by giving the medication by but uh, spiritually psychologically psychologically and socially. And uh, we address all those four major uh, major pillars of, of treatment um, uh, to have a, a good outcome on, on a particular patient. So when, when, you, uh, when you read something in the literature, you're going to find one to two years before even attempting to remove the medication from, from a patient. I'm just curious around some statistics around uh, relapse mm -hmm. and um, what that might look like because one to two years and then you have a clean life sounds pretty doggone good, but what's the relapse rate um, with these drugs in mind? 
Um, I, I think one, one, a couple of studies come to mind, uh, and uh, one is for methadone and one is for buprenorphine, and uh, both of them have pretty much uh, uh, say that uh, if you attempt to taper the medication within six months, you have a 90% chance of relapse on that particular patient. So it's not uh, advisable to do that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What are some of the other um, issues that you would deal with? Um, and this is for Ms. Riggs. Um, so, so you're saying uh, we'll provide medication-assisted treatment, but what else goes along with that? What will um, provide better outcomes? So the medication is just one small part of treatment for opiate use disorder. There, one of the things that I tell patients when they come in for an intake is that this medication, we're going to get you stable so that you can work on the psychosocial aspects. So you can focus on counseling. You can develop new coping skills to handle new stressors or triggers that would normally send you to that short-acting opiate. Um, so it's really about the whole patient, um, the whole person, and making sure that we address all other aspects um, of the of treatment, basically. So counseling, um, therapy, peer engagement, therapy, therapy okay. yeah. Uh, let me uh, let me point something uh, something else. One of the most important things uh, in the treatment of this uh, this uh, medical disorder is uh, the trust that you that you get from the patient. Uh, if you don't have the trust, and uh, like in any patient doctor relationship, it's really hard to treat somebody. So it, it's uh, you have to you have to really develop that uh, that that communication that rapport with the patient in order to engage that patient into treatment and and it's true you know uh, the more uh, the more you provide uh, for the patient uh, you provide the biological part of the treatment which is the medication uh, for the brain but you provide the therapy and the spiritual counseling and uh, the psychosocial uh, rehabilitation for uh, for the behaviors that ha have led these patients to to utilize drugs mm -hmm. One of the things that I'll tell patients is if you don't get that connection with your counselor or your therapist or your peer, that you should try to engage with someone else um, because that could be a, ver a barrier from helping them to move forward in their treatment. Perfect. Well, and I'm also guessing from um, trust with the organization, with the DEA, and has to build in terms of from the physician back and forth. There's a trust element that this sounds like new ground you're breaking here in terms of collaborating. And how do you build that trust when you've had basically a siloed um, mindset? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's something the DEA that we are definitely serious of and, and, and working on regularly. Because remember, if, if the doctors go bad, and that's such a small percentage, you're talking about less than one-tenth of one percent of all the registered doctors go bad and divert these things. If they go bad, it's me that comes and gets them. Mm -hmm. And so we have to have that. It's tough to come in and say, hey, I'm here to help you. But if you go bad, I'm actually the one that's going to put the handcuffs on you. So we have to work through that. I think that we have been because DEA's diversion role, our regulatory role, is designed to help educate these doctors and people that prescribe controlled substances so that they can follow the, the rules, the regulations, all, everything, that the law, the way it's written. A lot of it's education. It's very complex. 
the rules that surround the, the, the medical field and DEA's small part in it, which is related to the to controlled substances. And so uh, it, it's an effort that we at DEA have to, have to do better at. We have to reach out more to these doctors and we have to teach them more and we have to say that, hey, every time we're coming to talk to you, it's not because I'm going to put handcuffs on you. Yeah, good point. Yeah, uh, one of the most recent uh, laws in Arizona that are, uh, have been really, really helpful is the use of the uh, pharmacy monitoring program, which is a program uh, that now by law, every physician needs to, uh, every time you prescribe uh, any any type of uh, either uh, buprenorphine or any type of opioid, it goes to a, a, a state bank, a, and that uh, tells every physician uh, where this patient uh, got the medication from and who prescribed that medication. So from the medical perspective, it's a great tool to have uh, to make sure that the patient is not doctor shopping. And from the law enforcement, uh, also it, you know what doctors are involved in that type of behavior. Well, and I'm sure it shows up pretty quickly on graphs and charts. I mean, you're going to look like an outlier pretty quickly if you're out of alignment mm -hmm. within this group. Absolutely. Um, I'm curious in terms of surprises in your field, because you're each in three different fields. Um, Teresa, share with us a little bit around what, what are some of the surprises that have inspired you and given you hope in your field? I think when a patient sits in front of me, and for the first time, when I had a patient sit in front of me and tell me that they felt normal, um, that was huge. Um, that was my, oh my gosh, this is why I'm doing what I'm doing. They got their job, they got their license back, they were working on getting a car, they got their kids back from DCS. Whatever that looked like, they felt normal. And they said they hadn't felt normal in a really long time. Um, the other part was when I had a patient say, oh my gosh, thank you for actually treating me like a person. You're the first provider that's actually treated me like an individual, like a person in a really long time. And that made me want to cry um, because we're treating humans. Like the, we're all people here. Um, and so for the fact that they felt that they were being treated less than human was very disheartening. And all the more reason for me to know that what I'm doing is absolutely correct and education is huge. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'd like to hear about some surprises within your field. Well, uh, it's, uh, I, I think uh, tagging along with uh, what Carissa said, um, you know, in the medical field, uh, especially in the behavioral health and the psychiatric part, uh, it's, it's rare when you have uh, an instant gratification. You know, you usually treat depression or schizophrenia or bipolar, all those type of uh, uh, mental illness, and uh, you rarely see a miracle happen right away. Right. With this substance abuse treatment, whether it's methadone or suboxone, you have the luxury to to see in front of you the transformation coming from a patient who is in severe distress in front of you and after one dose or two doses of medication it's it's a total different different person it's amazing the transformation is really rewarding and then uh, that's that's one uh, the other uh, the other part uh, occurs when they stick around because you treat him well like Teresa said like a person like a human being 
team, and then you go with them uh, throughout all the problems. I can I can think about uh, the most common thing that we face is people losing their kids uh, with uh, because they use, you know. And if they stick around long enough, you see that gratification and people come into your office and say, Dr. Perea, I got my kids back, mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, wow, mm -hmm. that's, that's really great. I remember having a conversation, this goes a few years back, I was having dinner with Peggy Chase, the, the president and CEO at Taros Health, and she was sharing with me some accolades and some notoriety that Taros Health had received uh, regarding family reunification. And family reunification doesn't always mean the child is living back at home. Right. Sometimes it can mean supervised visits, but there's a unifying element there. And that's where I, as a, a leadership training provider for the, the folks at Terrell's Health had such that warm feeling uh, in my heart where, wow, we're working with an organization. Not only are they changing lives, they're saving lives. And it was so rewarding. So I want to hear some, Doug, your list of surprises might be a little different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, some of my surprises might not be appropriate for what we're doing here. But, no. I, you know, I have, I have two that, that really strike me as, as a th I'm an old time narc. I've been doing this for over 30 years. And, and I think that the two things with this opioid epidemic, and we talk about this, that are striking. The first one is, is that the, the energy of the young DEA agents that are coming on now to do something about this is, is very inspiring to, to a, an old guy like me. And, and I, I love to see their energy. They realize that we are at the forefront of, uh, of an epidemic that is killing thousands of Americans, uh, uh, over 150 Americans every day. And, uh, and, and their dedication and, uh, and what they're trying to do is, is inspiring for, for an old guy. But the second thing that I think is that, that is really important, that is really neat, um, is we have a program at DEA where, where when there's an overdose death, and then we're doing this here in Arizona, when there's an overdose death related to, uh, to an opioid, um, and, and we can find, we, we will go out and we will examine the crime scene, and we will go back and we will find the person that gave that lethal dose to the person that, that, that passed away. The, the family members, the parents of these people, the, the gratitude they have for the fact that we took the time to do that. Because these overdoses happen so much. There were so many of them that most of the time those crime scenes never get worked. Mm -hmm. It's an overdose death and nobody's going back to look at what happened. The cop, the, the, the patrolmen that respond and the detectives that respond, they, they do what they have to do to clean the scene and move on to the next one. Because it's not a violent death. It's not, you know, but, but we at DEA, we will go and we will go back and we will find the person that gave that lethal dose and and the gratitude and the 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 heartfelt thanks to, from the parents of these overdose victims that it, it, it's really awe-inspiring for us and it makes us want to get up every day and keep keep coming back thank you for sharing that and thank you for doing that because as you say once the crime scene is wrapped up you could stop there yeah. mm -hmm. um, and because your list is full mm -hmm. and you have a lot to do any other questions you have for us today I have no other questions. I just, you know, want to say in closing, basically, that for me, um, I am really hopeful about um, the collaborative efforts that we all have and the roles that we play within the justice system, within um, the medical field, within behavioral health. Um, you know, I've been working with juvenile offenders in, in probation for 23 years. Um, I, I'm an educator as well. And so for me, I definitely appreciate the collaborative efforts that we see, especially in terms of this uh, opioid uh, epidemic. 
Well, I can't wait to come back next year and hear some positive um, statistics and success stories of the collaboration that is taking place and the networking that's going on within this conference. So all four of you, I thank you today for sharing your gifts, your knowledge, your wisdom, and I know our audience is most appreciative. So thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you.